Hey, this is Randy Robinson, and I'm the pastor of Everyday Church. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this podcast encourages you, stretches your faith, and helps lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Let's do it. All right, let's jump in. So we're in the middle of a series called Winning Culture. And we've been answering the question, what does a winning culture look like? Because if we don't know, how can we ever hit the mark? And the truth is that this subject matter is infinite because every time we do what God asks us to do, technically that's a win. Uh, but we've tried to highlight just a few things that will ultimately, ultimately make our lives more attractive to whom the, outside, or to whom the New Testament calls outsiders. How can we win outsiders? Again, those are Paul's words, not mine. If we look, talk, and act exactly like culture. And so uh, we've been defining that for ourselves. And so we said that a winning culture is people who, and this is a quick review um, in an abbreviated form, people who spend time with God regularly, people who are full of and pursuing the Holy Spirit, people who invest in the lives of others. You remember a few weeks ago we did a message called Hold the Rope. People who are authentic, which is one of our core values as a church, with themselves and with God. And then the last two weeks we talked about the peace of God and the joy of the Lord. And when we begin to have those things, those attributes working in our lives, we will, uh, I believe, have more wins than losses. And that will then uh, basically say that we're having a winning culture. I mean, uh, college football opened up yesterday. And... uh, And it was just such a great day. Like, there's just like breath, a breath of fresh air. I don't know if anybody else felt like that, you know? It's like I didn't have to look at COVID. I didn't have to look at all the bad stuff. I was like, this is watch college football. And it was fun. It was a good day. But like, I'm from Kentucky. And we don't have a winning culture in football. Or in basketball. Wrong. Listen, I don't know why you don't pay attention. Listen, just for those that don't know, Kentucky is the winningest team in basketball in all of college history. All right. We have a winning culture in basketball, but not necessarily in football. So they're developing a winning culture. Like we're working on it. A winning culture means you have more wins than you have losses. And that's what we're trying to do in our life. We're trying to stack more wins than we do losses. And so last week I gave you some homework. Uh, we, gave, we talked about some practical things that we can begin to do to focus on. And the topic of last week was joy. And we called it first 15, last 15. And so I just wanted to ask really quickly, how did, how did that go? Did anyone, uh, did anyone participate in this? Were you more intentional about focusing on joy or peace this week? Who, who had an opportunity not to choose joy, but you chose joy and peace and pushed through and it ended up better? Amen. How many of you failed? You had a cho- choice, a moment not to choose joy, and you didn't, and it turned out exactly like it always does. You were just miserable. We had an experience like that at our house. I particularly, one of the things that we said last week is we, one of the ways you can do is begin to focus on gratitude. So I begin to just to try to focus on gratitude in my own life. Thankful not just for courtesy things, but thankful for everything. Thankful for the air conditioning. Thankful for whatever. And I was just trying to do that. And then Katie came home and she had, I didn't ask her for permission to share this, but she had done, she had been, you know, she'd been cleaning the house and the house looked amazing. She's just, a, if you've ever been to our house, it's always like immaculate. But she's one of those people, like if there's just one thing out, she's like, oh, it's a mess. You're like, ah, you straighten the pillow. I'm like, oh, it's perfect. And, uh, 
But she came, and I didn't acknowledge her work, and she'd you know, set up some pumpkins and getting ready for fall, because, you know, it's, it feels like fall outside. It just makes you want to, <laughs> right? And I, I, I just wasn't grateful. I was almost ingrateful in my attitude, and it changed the atmosphere. I just I crashed and burned. I don't know if you experienced that this week or not. But I, I noticed that when I'm focusing on joy, it changes, especially verbally. When you're speaking joy and you're speaking gratitude, it changes the atmosphere uh, that, that you are, that you're in. And so uh, it's, a, it's a choice. All right, so today we're going to add one more to this list. Last week, um, and, then, and then we're going to switch to the second part of the series We've been talking about what a winning culture is, and then we're going to be flipping to winning culture. How do we win those that are outside of the faith? Last week we read Romans 14, 17, and it says, For the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is supposed to be working in us and through us. And we said that if Satan can steal our peace, he's taken one-third of what we're supposed to be operating in. And if he can steal our peace and joy, he now controls two-thirds of how we're supposed to be functioning. And I don't know anyone or anything that functions well with two-thirds of their operating capacity being limited. Like, I don't remember a time in my life when peace and joy were under more of an attack than right now. I mean, and I'm going to get to the third part of this verse in a moment. But peace and joy are a big deal, especially in our current world. I've never seen so much fear. I remember being a kid in the 80s and being afraid of the Cold War, not even knowing you know, what that was. I was afraid that the communists from the Soviet Union were going to come and attack America. My young mind didn't understand all the nuances and all the things that were going on. But even in the height of all the craziness of the 80s and stuff, I don't think people were as afraid as they are right now. Even after 9-11, people just, they, they didn't seem as afraid as they are right now. So again, peace and joy are a big deal. We said that peace and joy is an outward sign of inward faith in the promises of God. It's an outward sign of inward faith in the promises of God that no matter what's going on around me, I know that it's going to be okay, and that's why I can choose joy and choose peace, which is why, again, it's so important, because if we as Christ followers can maintain our peace in the chaos and our joy through the turmoil, it will speak volumes to those who are outside of the Christian faith. And let me tell you how the last three weeks tie into the first three weeks of this series. Peace and joy are a byproduct of the things we talked about on the front end. Peace and joy are a byproduct of spending time with God and pursuing and being full of the Holy Spirit. They're a byproduct of being authentic and serving others. Because we look like and we sound like those things or people that we spend the most time with. And so time with God will produce peace and joy. Being authentic will relieve the stress and anxiety of trying to be someone or something that we're not. And serving others will always produce joy because it takes the focus off of ourselves. When we begin to serve others, our worries and our fears and our anxieties move to the background. All right, back to Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We talked about peace. We talked about joy. But today I want to talk about righteousness. And the subject of righteousness is honestly inexhaustible. Because it certainly deserves more than a 20 or 30 minute discussion. So consider today an introduction to the subject of righteousness. And we will revisit this in more depth at another time. But when I say the word righteousness, what do you, what do you think of? It's okay to talk back. 
When I say righteousness, what, what, do, you, what do you think of? God's way of Holy. Holy. What? God's way of doing things. The cross. Any, anything else? Right standing. Good, moral, right, just, justice. Uh, the definition really, the biblical definition of righteousness is this. Right standing with God. Right standing with God. So let that be the filter that we hear this through. Right standing with God. I want us to look at Luke chapter 15. This is a very popular passage of Scripture. We've spoken on it numerous times, even in our short existence as a church. But it's the story of the prodigal son. And we're going to read this parable that Jesus told about a son who wanted to be treated as a servant because he had made just a mess of his life. He had just been in a series of bad choices. But the father still treated him like a son. Now in this story, there are two sons. The younger son requests his inheritance early. He goes to his father and he says, hey, give me what's mine. I want it. So the father does. He gives him the inheritance. And then the younger son travels just a faraway country and he spends all of his money, all of his inheritance, everything that he has, he spends it on what the Bible calls wild or loose living. And after he had spent all that he had, a severe famine came to the land and the son found himself in need. And so he took a job working with pigs. And the Bible says that he was starving. And that's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. He said that he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Right? I mean, he's so hungry right now that he's willing to eat pig slop. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Make me like one of your employees. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now remember, he's rehearsing. He'd been rehearsing this in his mind earlier before the journey. But the father said to his servants, notice the father interrupts the son's rehearsed speech. He was going to say, we read earlier, that I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like a hired servant. But the father didn't even let him finish. He said, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Man, that's good. There's no question that the son had made Some terrible decisions. Verse 13, which we didn't read, said that he wasted all of his money on wild or loose living. I referenced that a minute ago. One of the definitions of wild or loose is shamelessly immoral. Shamelessly immoral. But the son thought that he could no longer be a son because of his bad behavior. But here's something that we need to understand is we're sons and daughters because of our birthright, not because of our behavior. Look at the words of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 35. I'm going to give you a lot of verses today. If you want to write them down and read them later, I would highly recommend it. He says, Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it 
forever. Meaning that your behavior is not what makes you a son or daughter. But this is the complete opposite of what the prodigal son thinks. Look back at verse 19 when he's rehearsing his speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make one version says, treat me like one of your hired servants. See, the son perceives his relationship with his father to be totally based on performance. He says, I'm no longer worthy. Which means at one time he thought he was worthy. He's saying to himself, as long as I'm at home and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, as long as, I, as long as I'm not out wasting my inheritance, then I was good enough to be a son. In other words, now that I've messed up, I can no longer be your son. And sadly, many of us act the exact same way. But look again at verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. And this is significant because over and over in Scripture, a robe is used to signify righteousness. Let me give you a verse from Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verse 10. He says, and this is just the first part of the verse, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he, hath, or he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And so when the father in Luke 15 says, bring the best robe, this is an example of the robe of righteousness. The father is saying, I know you've sinned. I know that you've made mistakes. I know you've made bad decisions, but you are not and never will be a hired servant. You are my son and I forgive you. Look quickly at Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says this, then he showed me Joshua. And this is not Joshua, the successor of Moses. This is Joshua, the high priest. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, usually when you see these specific words, the angel of the Lord, it's, it's usually a representation of Jesus. He says, And so the angel of the Lord, and he saw Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, Not today, Satan. <laughs> the Lord... We should, have, we should have queued up the song. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. This is not, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? He's talking about the priest. He says, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Now look, this is significant because he's saying that he's standing there, he's clothed with filthy garments. Isaiah chapter 64, 6 tells us that in all of our righteousnesses, all of them are like filthy rags. Remember, righteousness is right standing with God. So in other words, all of the good things that we've done to try to be in right standing with God are like filthy rags. It doesn't matter how good you are or try to be. We can never be good enough to be in right standing with God because God's standard isn't good, it's perfection. But God says in Zechariah, I will take away your filthy garments. I will remove your sin. I will remove your iniquity and I will clothe you with rich robes. I will clothe you with the robe of righteousness because your righteousness and my righteousness, all the good, the bad and the ugly that we've ever done, it's all just as filthy rags because God's standard is perfection. will always fall short. So if I ask you this question and I said, 
Is righteousness earned or is it a gift? How would you respond? It's a gift. Most of us would say that. But yet we live as if it's earned. If we're honest with ourselves, we are often just like the prodigal son. And instead of living as a son or daughter, we live or try to live as a hired servant. See, the hired servants are employees. These people worked for the father. They got paid to work for him. Being a servant is how they, watch this, it's how they earn their living. See, we, when we take the mentality of a hired servant, it's as though we're trying to earn our own righteousness. But we're not employees. We're sons and daughters. And our righteousness on our own is as filthy rags. We can't serve enough. You can't give enough money. We can't do enough good deeds. We can't say enough of the right things. We can't do enough good to be in right standing with God. And so the question becomes, well, how do we become righteous? And the answer is astoundingly simple. We believe. In Romans chapter 4, verse 3, it says, What does Scripture say? He's talking about Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 6, same chapter, Romans 4, 6. David said the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. God credits our account with righteousness apart from works. In other words, it can't be earned by working. Same chapter, Romans chapter 4 and verse 23 and 24. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone. Not him alone who? Abraham. But also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who, was, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. See, our righteousness account is in the negative. And every time that we try to earn our righteousness by doing good works, it's like writing a check out of an account without enough money. Has anyone ever done that before? <laughs> but I have gotten an NSF fee. Anybody else got an NSF fee? Yeah. Everyone under 25 is like, what's an NSF fee? <laughs> Some people under 25 are wondering what a check is. They're like, what are you talking about? I reached out to one of my great friends to help explain this point. Uh, we're going to show this via video. Would you welcome one of my great friends, I wish. Uh, we've been talking about him a lot, but just for a short clip, uh, Pastor Robert Morris. Let me, let me draw this out for you, all right? Let's, let's do three containers, okay? Three containers, and these three containers are going to be like accounts, all right? And what we're going to do is we're going to do three different people here. We'll actually put names on them, all right? What we're going to do is we're going to do the account of a bad person, the account of a good person, and the account of a perfect person. Obviously, uh, this is going to be Jesus because he's the only one that lived a perfect life. So this is his account, all right? So now I want to do an account of a bad person. Uh, I'm talking about before, uh, before he meets Jesus, before he believes um, I want to put a name on it. Okay. All right. I got one. I know this guy. He's really, he was really bad. Okay. All right. Just a random name. Just a random name I came up with. But this is a guy I know who was a bad 
person. Obviously, I'm talking about me. Okay, so a good person, uh, and again, just a random name, no one in particular, um, not, not trying to earn points or anything like that. So just, just random, random. Okay, all right. So a bad guy before he got saved, I didn't get saved until I was 19. I got saved in a motel room. Debbie got saved at nine, nine, okay? I got saved at 19. I was delivered from drugs. She was delivered from bubble gum, you know? Um, and she's free. She's totally free. She's free. So, okay. So, what did my account look like before I got saved? Now, let's come up with a code. S is going to stand for sin. R is going to stand for righteous, like righteous deeds, all right? Good deeds, right deeds, doing the right thing, okay? So, before I got saved, this is what my account looked like. Okay? Okay, you get the picture? Okay. But I did a few right things. I did. I went to my church, church with my parents, and so I, I, got, I had a few R's in my account. I did a, a few right. No, that, that one wasn't righteous. So. Okay. All right. Debbie's account, on the other hand, really looked like this. I mean, her parents told her to do something, she obeyed. She, she had a whole bunch of righteous deeds in her account before she got saved. But because she's a human, she had a few, you know, a few. <laughs> little sins in her account. Okay. So how are we gonna go to heaven? Here's something else I want you to understand. Even Debbie's righteousness isn't like Jesus's. What, what would Jesus's account look like? He's just righteous, right? But even Debbie's righteousness, remember this scripture, Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness says, plural, all our individual acts of righteousness are like filthy rags. So actually, this R could stand for rags. Okay. So if, if God looks at my account, he sees all this sin, and he sees filthy rags. And he looks at Debbie's account, and he sees sin, because everyone sins, but he sees filthy rags. He does not see righteousness, right standing with God. So what's he going to do? How am I going to go to heaven when I have sin in my account, Debbie had sin in her account, Abraham had sin in his account, and you have sin in your account? How am I going to go to heaven? And Jesus has righteousness in his account. Well, here's what happened 2,000 years ago. God took the righteousness out of his own son's account, and God put the sins 
of the whole world in his son's account. And that's why his son was condemned to death. Because the Bible says, God took the one who knew no sin and made him sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. So, when Jesus died for our sins, you have to understand something happened very amazing. A lot of people don't realize this. Jesus shed his blood, and the blood of Jesus erased our sins completely. And not only our sins, listen, the blood of Jesus erased the sins of the whole world. Becoming righteous or being in right standing with God is about believing in and accepting what Jesus did on the cross. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. That what we cannot do for ourselves, Christ did for us. He took our punishment. He took upon him our sin. And in return, he places on us his robe of righteousness. We just heard Robert Morris reverence in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we believe in Jesus and accept his sacrifice for us, it changes everything. Because now when the Father looks at us, he no longer sees our attempts to be in right standing. He no longer sees our filthy rags. He no longer sees our sin. He no longer sees our good deeds. He sees the robe of righteousness which belonged to Jesus because that's what was exchanged. We traded our filthy rags for his robe of righteousness. And then we are adopted into the family. Look at the words of Paul from his letter to the church in Galatia. Galatians 4, 7, he says, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. As Christ followers, we are righteous because of what Jesus did. And when we begin to understand that we're sons and daughters and not hired servants, when we begin to move away from the performance mentality, it will change, it will change everything. Look, so many of us struggle to accept that we're really in right standing with God. If we had a good week, then we come to church, we can lift our hands, we can sing, we can pray. If we had a bad week full of mistakes and we don't feel worthy, we won't lift our hands. We won't worship because I feel like a hypocrite. But that's not how it works. We don't worship God because we're worthy. We worship Him because He's worthy. That's us reverting back to a prodigal son mentality. I'm not worthy to be a son or a daughter. Treat me like a hired servant. God wants to bring us out of this mentality. As we get ready to wrap this up, I wanted to read a very famous verse of Scripture from Matthew chapter 3, 17. Matthew 3, 17. It says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Now this is right after, this is right after Jesus was baptized. But here's what's significant about this. Jesus has done nothing. He's performed no miracles. He hadn't opened the eyes of the blind. He hadn't fed the 5,000. He hadn't turned the water into wine. He hadn't healed the leper or cast out demons. He, didn't, he hadn't raised the dead. 
And yet his father said, I love you and I'm pleased with you. He was accepted as a son without performance. I want to tell you today that you too are accepted as a son or a daughter without performance. See, our starting place is love and acceptance from the Father. We don't have to perform to be accepted. We don't become righteous by doing righteous acts. We are righteous because we believed and righteousness is credited to our bankrupt accounts. Back to Romans. For the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I think in the context of this series, we could say it this way. A winning culture is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus died for the entire world, but we know that the entire world isn't going to accept him. In John chapter 3, probably the most famous scripture of all time. 316 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. People who grew up in church memorized the scripture as a kid, but we often just ignore verse 17 and 18. When he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why didn't Jesus come to condemn? Because we were condemned already. We were born into sin. And outside of accepting the love of God, we were already condemned. Verse 18, he says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. If you're here today and you have not accepted Jesus into your life, he's ready to make a trade. He's saying, I will trade you. I'll give you my righteousness and I'll give you eternal life. All I want from you is your sin. All I want from you is your right deeds. All I want from you are your filthy rags. Let's trade your dirty rags for my robe of righteousness. Others in the room are like the prodigal son. Maybe you're a son or a daughter, but you've ran away from the father. And you're trying right now to live like a hired servant instead of a son or a daughter. You're trying to be righteous by performance. But God is saying, stop trying to perform. I love you and I accept you before you do anything else. You're accepted. You're loved. You're righteous because he makes you righteous. If I could offer a disclaimer for anyone that's squirming in their seats, we haven't even talked about sin. Accepting righteousness is not a license to sin. That's not what I'm saying. It's an understanding that nothing that I do, good or bad, can make me righteous. My righteousness is credited to me by believing on God's Son. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. When we begin to understand who we are in Christ, that we are righteous and we are sons and we step away from the performance mentality, it will relieve so much stress and pressure off of our lives, understanding that we can just rest in being a son. 
can rest in being a son. Nothing Adrian's ever done will make him, or will ever do, will make him not my son. Nothing. No matter how bad, how gross, how much I hate, whatever it is he might do, there is nothing that he can do that will make him not my son. He's my son. And some of us are living that way. We've stepped outside of the Father's covering, so to speak, and we're living wildly and loosely as the prodigal son. And we're, we're saying, I can't, I'm not worthy any longer. And God's saying, just come back. Let's trade. Trade your filthy rags. I'll give you righteousness. You're still my son. And I still love you. See, we don't, we don't, we don't become righteous by doing right things. But because we're righteous, we do right things. We get it backwards. If I do all of these things, then I'll be righteous. No, when you become righteous, then you begin to do the right things. Would you bow your heads just for a moment all across? On behalf of Pastor Randy and the entire staff at Everyday Church, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. For more information on the church, please visit us at everydaychurch.xyz.